0: I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give you for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. (coughs) While conducting uh, an interview, the producer Rick Rubin, isolated the backing vocals on the Beatles' uh, song Dear Prudence and was amazed by how long the Fab Four held a particular note. Paul McCartney, who was being interviewed, said, "Yeah, you know, you do that kind of thing. Someone says, you think we can? You just try it? That's all that is. I mention this, first of all, because it gives me an opportunity to do my Paul McCartney impersonation, which we can all agree is just spot on. (laughs) Second, I feel like there's a similar line of thinking going on by the people who put together the revised common lectionary, right? Someone said, you think we can assign John 6 for five consecutive Sundays, and then you just assign it, you know, that's all that is. Five weeks, we're going to be in chapter six. It's like a dare. Pastor Scott, who is sort of the Ringo, I think, of the United Church of Christ, uh, texted this week to ask if I was planning to preach it again. He said, I'm not sure I've got more to say about the bread of life. I said, well, I was. I had a pretty good idea of where I was going to go with it. And it was only afterward that I realized that the verse I wanted to plan on is next week. So we're just stuck with these verses. Now, here's the interesting thing about chapter six. It reminds me of what John Lennon, speaking of the Beatles, uh, said that caused an uproar back in the day when he said, you know, that they were more popular than Jesus. Well, they were certainly more popular than the Jesus we meet in these verses. My college roommates' band was more popular than the Jesus. We meet in these verses. Any Warden House fans? Uh, yeah, no? You the man, you gonna play guitar? No? Doesn't ring a bell? Well, too bad. Got a great review in my college newspaper. I ought to know, I wrote the review. <laughs> anyway, so consider where Jesus starts in this chapter. He and the disciples can't shake the crowds. They're so determined to follow him. Thousands venture to find him in the wilderness. And then Jesus feeds them five loaves and two fish. As far as this chapter is concerned, this is where his, sort of, his popularity sort of peaks. This, this miracle, it radicalizes the crowd. We're, the, we're told that they're ready to force a coronation on him. But it's all downhill after this. First of all, Jesus hides, which is never a great PR strategy. But that doesn't completely deter the crowd. It just delays them. And when they finally catch up with them again, they're just a little confused. They were certain that they had read the signs correctly. Clearly, what happened out there was a sign that God had delivered, the God who had delivered his people from tyranny was at work again, was on the move again. What did they miss? What did they get wrong? Well, Jesus will start out sounding as though he's going to say they got it right. The signs do, in fact, point to a revival of the Exodus narrative. So they're like, "Ha! just as we suspected. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He goes on. The problem is you don't believe. What's that supposed to mean? We were radicalized. We were about to make him king, for Pete's sake. If it hadn't been for your little disappearing act, the revolution would be on. Well, rest assured, restless horde, he's right. He is right. You may think you believe, but just keep listening. He's going to start saying things that are going to make you start to second-guess that belief. He's going to start saying things that are a little far-fetched, identifying himself as the bread that comes down from heaven. This is the kind of thing that's going to get a little side-eye. Down from heaven? Wait, aren't you uh, Mary Joseph's kid? But at that point, Jesus does not dial it back a little bit. Nope. It's as if he's determined to sort of stamp out any flame of belief still in them. You know, and if the grandiose claims don't do it, he's going to throw some gross claims in there. Did he just say eat his flesh, drink his blood? What in the world? Come on, come on, hon. We're getting out of here. Right? So the crowds just start to head home. What is going on here? What is his reason for saying this? Just to gross people out, turn people off? I mean, bread was a nice choice of metaphor. Love bread. Bread warm from the oven. Just the smell of it can sell a house. But Jesus takes this metaphor and dials it way up. My flesh is bread. Eat it. My blood is drink. Drink it. What response does Jesus want to something like that other than, yikes, Is it just to alienate people? Is it just to offend people? Or is Jesus deeply serious? You know, I find that something like reconstruction after the Civil War helps me get a handle on what Jesus is getting at here. You know, after the Civil War, The newly freed African Americans proved to be industrious in their work and measured in their governance. And this was a huge problem for Southern whites. After all, Hundreds of thousands of their husbands and sons, fathers, and brothers died in defense of an idea that enslaving African Americans was natural, necessary, even divinely sanctioned. And Reconstruction was suggesting that those people had died in vain they had died for a lie. And it's a lot of people. According to most recent estimates, 750,000 died on the battlefields of the Civil War. If you're in the South, how do you live with that? How do you live with the fact that all you're grieving all this loss? and the sense that it was for nothing. Well, here's what, what, what they did. So they got the, the, the racist president to take the federal troops out of the South, and they took, retook power. And then they started to rewrite history. You could see that a version of that history in a movie like Birth of a Nation. You know, it depicts African-Americans during Reconstruction as predatory and corrupt. And it presents the KKK as the heroes. And the movie is a huge hit. President Wilson describes it as history written by lightning. He says the only flaw with the film is it is so terribly true. Nope. That's not the flaw, Mr. President. You know, a big deal has been made in recent years about statues erected in honor of Confederates. Maybe, maybe, maybe too big a deal. But those two play a role in perpetuating that myth, that false version of history. After all, the message sent by a towering pedestal in the city center with a larger than life Stonewall Jackson cast in gleaming bronze, the message sent by that thing is not, hey, that's a guy who led people to their death for greed and uh, slavery and a lie. No. Statues like that are erected to give dignity and honor to the cause that, in fact, represents the worst part of our nation's history. Stuff like that doesn't heal any wounds. They simply hide the wounds. Jen and I watched a documentary about the city, of, uh, the city council in New Orleans that made this decision to, re- decision to remove four prominent statues. And the outcry in response, it made it impossible for them to actually carry out that decision. It took nearly, I think, mean, like two years. Not only were there lawsuits, there was the fact that no crew would do the work. It's too risky think, like, how is it 150 years later, so much is unsettled? How is it that there is such a wound? I mean, it is a judgment on our nation. And I must admit, it's a judgment on me. Like, I look at my own life. I did not try to live a life where I had so little interactions with African-Americans. That's the life I have. That's the life I've had for most of my life. It's like a whites only sign above my head. I didn't want there, but that's how it's worked out. You know, and I get that many of us are weary of talking about race. Well, I take that back. We all, we all are weary. Of talk about race, but whether we talk about it or not, we're not over it. Not talking about it doesn't make it go away. You know, in the in the years since that controversy in New Orleans, uh, other c- cities have removed their statues, but in many cases, it's not because city councils came to a decision and made a ruling. And yet, yeah, no, their statues have been removed as Acts of vandalism. In other words, people have rejected the idea that such things could be addressed through the system. They figured the system would only work to preserve the myth. We're all weary of it. And one thing I know, one thing I know from my personal experience, and I suspect that you'll know from your experience, is that weariness mutates. Given time, weariness turns into frustration and anger. And anger can be useful. It can be a fuel, but it is not a fuel that burns clean. It can mess with your vision. Anger puts bullseyes on people. turns them into targets, opportunities to unleash that anger. It is our anger our weariness with the world dead set on self-destruction, and our weary anger with ourselves and our own failings that Jesus speaks to today. You know, pleasant metaphors like bread and shepherds and all that can't speak to weariness and anger. Don't talk to us in pastels, Jesus. Speak in vivid colors and make it visceral. Give us something we can sink our teeth into before we simply lose it all together. To that, Jesus says, sink your teeth into me. Bring your anger and desperate weariness here to me. Feed on me like I'm bread. Drink me up like I'm water. Things can build up. Some wounds refuse to heal. They fester. And things happen, and it's unclear who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And the people who are certain who are the good guys and the bad guys, well, they often become the people you really need to watch out for. And we get so weary and we get so frustrated. Sometimes we just want to settle it once and for all. A reporter from uh, NPR's This American Life Related Story on a recent episode illustrating this tendency we have. He had a daughter who was a light sleeper and a neighbor who liked to crank up Alice in Chains. The neighbor ignored him when he came knocking on the door to, trying to tell him to turn it down, so he had to call the cops. So the cops came, and at that point, the neighbor turned it down. Until next time. And so he had to call the cops again. And then there was the next time. And eventually the cops stopped responding to his calls. Finally, a day came when that opening scream from Allison changed them bones, rattled the neighborhood, and his daughter woke up screaming he had enough. She grabbed his gun and fired six rounds into the ground outside his neighbor's house. And it was at that moment he realized I'm not the good guy in this situation. Things can build up. The wounds refuse to heal. They fester and things happen. When Jesus gets arrested and stands trial, it's not the, it's not the pleasant imagery that they bring up. It's not the charming metaphors. It's, you know, it's a statement he made about destroying the temple and stuff he made about what seemed like blasphemy claiming to be king, and and Jesus, in response, offers no defense. It's as if he is content to be the problem, to be the one they heap all their frustrations on. And then it's off to Pilate. And it's unclear to Pilate how Jesus is the bad guy here, but he grows weary, frustrated. He puts a eye on Jesus and invites the soldiers to make him a target for a while. But this doesn't appease the leaders. In fact, now the crowd's in on him. You know, for Pilate it's like, Pilate's got to keep this powder keg from just totally exploding. So he says, fine, kill him, sink your teeth into him, feed on him. how does How does Jesus do it? How has he managed to stay silent? How does he keep from lashing out? How does he refuse to go down without taking a few others with him? It's because he knows. He knows none of that will heal the wounds. All the wounds, all the pain we inflict on one another, it won't change that. So he refuses to inflict more pain. But it's more than that, too. He's not just refusing to inflict pain. He's determined to bring healing. So as the prophet Isaiah declared, he was wounded for our transgressions and upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole. Last week we talked about Jesus as this sort of portal through which eternity enters the ordinary. Well, it is at the cross. It is in his death that the portal opens up. Eternal life gets set loose. How do we overcome our weariness? How do we move past the anger festering in the wounds we carry? How do we keep them from putting targets on others? We feed on this. We drink this up. This one through whom eternity breaks into our midst becomes our meal. His life must be taken into our own. The eternity that powered his love and resurrection must be our food, our drink. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate and died. They died. But the one who eats this bread Will live forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.